able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 11. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3, and then 8 through 10, and then uh, we're going to read Genesis 15 and uh, continue on where we left off with Abram. So Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, 8 and 10, and then Genesis 15. And it reads, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. In verse 8, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and to go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going, and even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Now turn all the way back to Genesis 15. If you would please. Genesis 15 at verse 1 reads, Sometime later the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own, and you will be your, he, who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur and Chaldeans to give you the land as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcass, but Abram chased them away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to the land for the sins of the Amorites and not yet warrant their destruction. After the sun went down and the darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, Kizanites, Canaanites, Hittites, Pesites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gegeshites, and Jebusites. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you 
again, for this opportunity to come before you and worship you. And we're so thankful, Lord. We are so thankful that you keep your covenant and your promise, Lord, and you fulfilled it through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are blessed by you. We thank you for the chance that we had to come and worship you through song. Now we will worship you through your word and through fellowship afterwards, Lord. Lord, we pray for that your spirit illuminates the scripture for our understanding, Lord. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So as the kids mentioned in the video um, where we left off, um, Abram, Abraham uh, is promised a whole lot of things. And uh, as he is promised, he was told specifically of what to do, to leave the land of your fathers, leave your family behind to a new land. And we, we went over um, the, the fact that he did that, except he did take Lot. That was a mistake. Um, then eventually a famine came, we discussed that a little bit, and then as the famine came, instead of consulting with God, he ran down to Egypt, and while he was in Egypt, he knew because his wife was so beautiful that the Egyptians would love his wife, so he said, hey, although you're ha my half-sister in real life, let's just stick with that, let's not mention a wife, and the reason why is the Egyptians, I think I had mentioned last week, they held on to the sibling bond higher than any other bond. Second was the, the parent to child bond. And then thirdly, just a marriage, we can kill him. So he lied. Uh, he had um, his wife lie. And then, of course, the Lord came to the Pharaoh and said, what are you doing? And the Pharaoh was so scared because of the plagues and everything that would happen, which is a foreshadowing of what will come later on in Exodus. So then he's rushed out and he's left, but the Pharaoh wanted to make sure he was good with some god, a god, he gave him a ton of things, including Agar, which will eventually be another downfall of his, but we'll get into that next week. So here they leave, and then right where they left before the famine, they end up as if God was waiting for them and saying, okay, are you ready to do what I've asked you to do? So Abram and Lot, they both have a lot of um, um, Wealth, they're doing very well for themselves, but they start to have conflict. Anyone ever have family conflict? Liars, yeah, you do. <laughs> and then it got so bad that even Abram's men and servants were arguing and fighting with Lot. And remember, Abram is the one that was promised by God to have this land and these descendants, and he's not quite sure how this is working out. All he knows is he blew it. But he goes right back to coming back to the Lord, which is just if there's anything that you hear this morning, wherever you are at in your walk with the Lord, even if you just sin five minutes before you got here, you can always come back to the Lord. Always. Never run away from him. Always go to him. He knows what you did. You're not going to surprise him. We can go home. All right. But seriously, wherever you're at, go back to him. And that's what Abraham did. So he gets with Lot and says, Lot. All this belongs to me. Get out of here. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, you know what, Lot? You're my nephew. You pick whatever land you want. You can have it. Although I'm the promised one, although it's promised to me, although this wealth technically belongs to me, you pick. If you go east, I'll go west. That's why they got a little mixed up there. But um, you go north, I'll go south. You go this way, I'll go this way. So, of course, Lot looks and he sees the best, greenest looking land 
which comes to us, at which we know as Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Poor choice. But he goes there, and, and what we did not read in the previous chapter is then there's these feuding nations that are fighting, the Chaldeans and all these other names that are very difficult to fight, are pronounced, they're getting into a fight, and they're going at war, and it ends up being five kingdoms versus four kingdoms. And in this fight, Lot gets captured, and all of the people in his family get captured and are brought up north. So Abraham finds out, and then he goes on a rescue mission with 318 of his servants, which is pretty neat because who has trained assassins as servants? Abram does. So he, sent, he goes and he, he enters in and he fights this big battle. And if you want to get a little nerdy afterwards, if you look up the names of each of the kingdoms, they are some kind of reptilian demonic name. Um, so some people speculate that it wasn't just a physical war, but a spiritual war of demons. One of the group's names is called Cave Dwellers. That's where all of the, the, the mystery and all of the supernatural things about not going into caves come from. There are people who are run on all fours. Those are supposed to chase demons, all these other stuff. Regardless if that's true, that's what their name means. I just think it's cool, but I could talk about it for an hour, but I won't. But... All that to say is he defeats them and he comes back home. The one question, the one thought that I was considering is it would have been hard enough for him to let his nephew take the land that was promised to him. And then he gets caught and captured. And if it's me for a brief moment, I would have said, I'll wait a couple days. He deserves it. And before you judge me too quickly, have you, have you ever... Have you ever been slow to respond to help someone? Just because you really wanted them to feel the weight of their actions. And I'm not talking about accountability. I'm not talking about, you know, there shouldn't be consequences. All about that. But for me, I, I just, I'm impressed that right away he finds out, he runs and goes and rescues them. And just, just for the sake of picking up, we didn't read it while we were standing up. But if you would turn to Genesis 14... And it'll be on the screen, 17 and 24. This is after the great victory, which it will say, I just want to touch on a few things that I think will help lead to the covenant, which I would really want to talk about this morning. So Genesis 14, verse 17 through 24. Now remember, he, he, he saved the day. So verse 17 says, after Abram returned from his victory over the Caradon Marine, yep, and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiv, and that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. So just a quick stop, just so we know what's happening. He comes back from this great victory. As he's returning from this victory... There is a king who is a king and a priest, very rare. The perfect king and priest is Jesus Christ. A king and priest from Salem, Jerusalem. This becomes Jerusalem, where Melchizedek blesses Abraham, or Abram, is the same place that he will be asked to sacrifice his son. 
which will be the same place that Christ, Jesus, is actually sacrificed. So some people argue and, and, and debate whether or not Melchizedek is a Christophany, which, is mean, which, which means Christ in the appearance of a man before he comes as Jesus Christ. So throughout, so throughout the whole Old Testament before Jesus is born, there's moments where it would appear that Jesus appears in a human form to bless. And this is one of them. If you want to know my opinion, my opinion is, I don't know. <laughs> Probably it makes sense. At least that's how I've been taught and trained. I know if you're going through scripture and you're looking specifically for Melchizedek is Christ. It does not say that, so there could be argument. But one thing I want to bring out that I feel that is more important regardless of, of where, where, I, where it sits is what Melchizedek does. Notice what he does. He, he brought Abram some bread and wine. What does bread and wine represent? The body of Christ. What do we do? We don't do wine, we do grape juice, but we take bread or crackers and some grape juice. And that represents Christ's body and blood that, that was shed for us, that was broken for us. Which interesting is, is Jesus hasn't done this yet. So this is for sure a foreshadowing of what is to come. This is, again, this is the first time that, the, that this king is both king and priest. Remember the issue that people, the Jewish people had with Jesus? They were hoping that he would be less priestly and more kingly. And actually, he was both. But really, what they wanted is a, is a battle warrior guy that comes in and destroys all of Rome. Melchizedek is both that. Jewish tradition talks about all the great wars that he's won and, and all of that. That's why there's some... some uh, uh, debate whether or not who he exactly is. But then after he shares some bread and wine, he blesses him. He says, blessed be Abram by God, most high, Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. So both this is a kingly and a priestly blessing. And then the response the remainder of verse 19 says, Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. What is a tenth? A tithe. You bring all of, bring your tenth to the storeroom, um, bringing a tenth to God. And this eventually becomes uh, Jerusalem, as I mentioned. And, and uh, tradition has it that this money, because Abram was very wealthy, is the money that eventually financed the actual start of some of the construction of it. But then it goes on in verse 21. It says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. So Sodom, Sodom is where Lot uh, settles down at, very prosperous. The Sodom king was one of the guys that got wrapped up and kidnapped. So he was also saved. So he says, give back all the people who you were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. And this is what Abram says. And this is the introduction. This is actually the introduction to the covenant. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord, God most high, notice God most high is exactly what Melchizedek had blessed him with. He's recognizing, oh, God is really who he says he is. Remember, Abram's background is his daddy was an idol maker. He carved, 
carved wooden and, and stone uh, items for, to, to worship. So he's, he's comprehending a little bit more. He's going out and he says, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, exactly the way that he was blessed, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from, from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. So right away, he says, you can have everything back. I've already been blessed by God. I don't need anything. And just so we're clear, I don't want one day for you to say, you see that fancy house he has? I gave it to him. Just to be clear. Because Sodom runs into that problem. So Sodom and Gomorrah, you probably know, we talked about it in Psalm 23 several weeks ago, months ago, however long ago it was. 1988, I don't know, but however long ago, we were talking about how Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and really when I say Sodom and Gomorrah, you probably go to sexual sin, right? Like the most evil place. You may even see on the news, they call America and other places Sodom and Gomorrah. So it is sexual sin, but it's way more than that. It's sin abound. So what Abram is doing, because he has been blessed, is he says, I don't want anything to do with what you're doing. So he has some inkling that something is not right there. And we'll see that later in next week. But he says this, I will accept only, verse 24, excuse me, I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I request that you give a fair share of goods to my allies, Anar, Eskol, and Marine. So these are the other kingdoms that he other people that he had help. So he says, I don't want anything. So this is where the covenant starts. Essentially what he is saying here is he's saying, I have been blessed so much by God, I don't need to be rewarded for doing the right thing. Who here wants to be rewarded for doing the right thing? Me? I mean, if I work, I want to get paid. More so, and that's fine. That's the way it should work. But more so, it, if you do something good, don't you want a pat on the back? You know, I, I bring this up because, you know, I confess sin from the pulpit all the time, but I'm pretty proud of myself the once a month I do the dishes. And I want Natalie to tell me I'm the best thing ever. You're laughing because you're probably thinking you too. But really, you want this acknowledgement. But for Abram here, the most important thing is he did the right thing. He was blessed by God. And he moved on. And that is where now we will pick up from this covenant that God makes. And this really, if, if I know the, the series, I call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. Really, this is just the good section because this is all about what God does through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the covenant that he makes. So this today, this chapter is just the good of Christ. There's some bad that Abram does. But really, that reflection shows how good our God is. So with that, let's just go back to um, Genesis 15. So we don't know how long, how much longer it takes. It just says sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and, you, and your reward will be great. I like how the new King James uh, phrases it in the ESV. It says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. It's interesting that he says, don't be afraid. Why would he be afraid? He just came off a great victory. But what? why? Well, anytime Christ comes, we, we should have this fear and trembling and awe and respect. 
So right away, and we see that over and over again throughout the New Testament, when angels come, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Verily, verily, I say to you, do not be afraid. He says, I am your shield and the very great reward. Essentially, God is confirming and affirming what Abraham believed in the chapter before. God is enough. And this is, again, on the heels of this great victory Abram has. See, God knows how to become the answer to our need before we even recognize our need. And when we need a shield or a reward, he becomes those things. I like what Spurgeon says. He says two things about this. I don't think that any human mind can ever grasp the fullness of meaning of these four words. I am thy reward. God himself, the reward of his faithful people. And then he goes on to say, if God be our reward, let us take care that we do not, excuse me, if God be our reward, let us take care that we do really enjoy him. Let us exult in him and let us not be pinging for after any other joy. The source of our joy is the Lord. And that's what, that's the introduction to the covenant that he's making. And he goes on, so he says, going back to the NLT, verse one of Genesis 15, I will protect you and, and your reward will be great. That's what God says to him. And then people's famous words, but, verse two, but Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? He gets right to the fact of the matter. Sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Right there. I don't have a son. Like, this is all good. We read Spurgeon. But I don't have a son. And, and, and you said descendants, remember? And you said to leave the land. But I don't have a son. And just in case you don't know God, I'm pretty old. And then his shift goes, since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. This is not a complaint about who Eleazar is. It's just saying, I don't have offspring. It will go to my most trusted person. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. And of course, not having an heir in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in many kingdoms thereafter, if you do not have an heir to the throne, your kingdom is over, someone will take over, it is a curse. It is considered a curse. So essentially he's saying, I know you'll be my reward. I don't have a son. You've actually cursed me. That's pretty bold to say to God, but that's exactly what we need to do when we have our doubts. Sometimes when we have doubts, when we feel called by God to do various things or anything at all, we have doubts, and then we are ashamed or afraid that we have doubts, and we pretend that we don't. And we call that faith. That is not faith. Faith is not pretending you do not have doubts. Faith is taking a step when you do have doubts. Remember last week, I said sometimes we take a little step like this, and then we get scared and run away. I mentioned humorously, but it was truthful. I always made my brother do all the dumb things first to make sure it was good. And I made him do all the good things first to make sure that it was good. You jump off the roof and see if you can clear the wall into our neighbor's pool. If you hit the wall, no, I can't make it. 
But really, at that heart is, is, is where I had total fear, total doubt, but I admit it. And this is what Abram is doing. Lord, you're great. You bless me. I have a lot of doubt. I don't know how this is going to work. And God says, that's exactly where I want you to be. I'm glad you're honest with it. Stop pretending you're perfect and stop pretending you don't have doubt. So this is where we're setting up. You've given me no error. And then verse four, it says, then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir. Your concern, you do not have to worry about that. For you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. So I would imagine, and this is totally just my thought, that Abraham really looked up at the sky, assuming that he's somewhat like me. One, two, three. That's a lot of stars. Did I already count that one? One, two. And then all of a sudden it clicked. Oh, it's not about counting. It's beyond what I can comprehend in this blessing. And in verse 6, the famous verse 6, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. This is our faith. This is clear that it is that you believe the Lord. You are counted righteous not by all the good deeds or all the good works or how faithful you think you are. It is based on Christ and Christ alone. Also, that word believed, it's the first time that it shows up in Scripture. So the very first person who believed was Abram. That is why he's the father of our faith. That's why he's always given an account. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Abram believed the Lord. It doesn't say Abram did a whole bunch of work for the Lord, and then the Lord counted him as righteous. And then it doesn't say that. It said Abram believed in the Lord. And it wasn't even perfect belief. Because in verse 8, it's a but Abram again. Abram believed in the Lord. Then the Lord counted him, which is a legal transaction, an accounting transaction. He put to credit in his account based on his belief because of what Christ will eventually do, but what who God is and counted him as righteous. Abram believed, not perfectly, but he believed. That's where we need to start in our faith journey. Believe. Again, it's the first time we see that word believed. It's the same word that's been carried on that we use today. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then look what happens. Then the Lord told him in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. So he said, you will have more than a son. You will have many descendants, as many as the stars. Abram believed him. Then the Lord said, and I'm going to give you land you possess. In verse 8, Abram said, um, excuse me, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? How many people here have ever asked Jesus, how can I be sure? How can I really, really know? We go to Gideon, he throws out the fleece, make it wet, and make the ground dry. Ooh, maybe that didn't count. Do it in reverse. Back it up, double flip. That's an exaggeration, but you get the point. How can I be sure? Or maybe, maybe it may sound like this for you. Lord, I believe in you, but I don't believe in me. 
I'm not sure that I can do this. How can I be sure that you promise, okay, maybe I'll have a kid. I'm getting old here. I believe you in that. And this land, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? How, how can I be sure? I want us to stop here real quick and go over the Romans 4, 1 through 5. If you want some homework, read all of Romans 4 this week and, and uh, any doubt of your, your salvation is based on work, I hope, will be cleared up. But Romans 4, speaking specifically about Abram's faith, says this, Abram's 4, 1 through 5. Abram was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. Humanly speaking, saying God's actually the founder. But humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. God, look at all the great and wonderful things I've done. I've, I've done so much good. That's the reason why you have found me righteous. That's the reason why I'm saved. And he would have boasted about it. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of what? His faith. In faith alone. In Christ alone. When people work for their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. This is the reason why we point to Abraham and say, wow, the father, humanly speaking, of the Jewish nation, which leads to the birth of Jesus Christ, which leads to our salvation. It's because he believed in God. God makes this promise to him to have a children. And Abram says, but I don't have any kids. Then he says, don't worry about it. You will have many descendants. And also you will have a land. And at this time, although he was wealthy with a lot of material, he was intense. He was a nomad. He was going from place to place with all of the people it's it speculated that it was over 10,000 people are moving along with no land of their own. The Canaanites, which becomes the issue later on for Joshua to defeat, is still there. So it's a good question. How, how will I have land? I don't have land now and everywhere I see are bad guys because I just gave them a pretty good whipping a little bit ago, but they're probably going to come back. Like That makes sense. That, that makes total sense. But again, from Romans, it is by faith that he believes and, and here, here's that thing, it's, it's that, but, but are you sure, God, how does it work? And just be sure that when, when you're in that place, and if you haven't been in that place, you're probably not being honest with yourself. But if you're in that place, bring it to God and, and ask him the question. Here's the good news. God is big enough to deal with your whiny butts, okay? It's like, but, but, but. That's funny, I didn't mean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go home. <laughs> just as bad as the kids. <clears throat> Wash my mouth out with soap. But with your whining, he can handle that. But so many times we're so scared like, that God's going to be disappointed in us because we're human. 
or we've been walking with the Lord for however long and we think we should be better at this place than we actually are. And I'm not saying we shouldn't mature or grow. That's very important. I'm just simply saying we're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. But in our minds, we, we have this great expectation of it, or we hide from it. And again, that, that New King James rendering, and he accounted it to him for righteousness, for righteousness. This is one of the clearest expressions in the Bible of the truth of salvation by grace through faith. This is the first time, again, believe is used, and it's actually the first time righteousness is used in the Bible, and they're put together because you're only righteous because of your belief for what Christ has done. But, but let's look back real quick at the two promises God makes with Abraham in this covenant. He hasn't performed the covenant yet. He promises him two things. I've dwelled on it pretty good. You're going to have a lot of descendants, and you're going to have land. You're going to have these two things. God promises them. And we see that in this conversation that takes place between man and Jesus all the time, we, we see that I'm going to promise you these things. I'm going to promise you these things. I'm faithful. I'm going to do it. I promise. I promise. I promise. And then again, but, but God, please, I think if we look at Mark 9, this, is our, this should be our approach. Every time that you have doubt, look at Mark 9. So just the cliff notes here, Mark 9, verse 21 through 24. This is where a man has a young boy who's demon-possessed. All through Mark 9, the disciples are trying to get the demon out of him. They can't do it. And they're like surprised. They're like, we, we used to be able to do this. What's wrong with us? And then there's this conversation of why it can't happen, and then we'll pick it up with Jesus saying in verse 21, how long has this been happening Speaking specifically, how long has he been possessed? Jesus asked the boy's father, and he replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Whew, if you can. But it's an honest question. And then Jesus says, what do you mean, if I can now, you could read this, and I tried to read it softly. What do you mean if I can? But if you look at the Hebrew in the original language, it's full of tenderness. Because the, the question is, in Hebrew, if the question is put up in front, in Hebrew it says, if I can, what do you mean? So he's, he's firm, but he's sincere. He says, what do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. Same word that Abraham is accredited for. Then verse 24, and here, here, here's really where we need to land, I think. Anytime that we have doubt, anytime that we are questioning God, anytime the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Lord, I do believe in you. I know you can do all things. But help me overcome my unbelief. There's areas that I do not have belief. I wish they weren't there, Lord. I do have faith. It's not perfect faith. Here's all my baggage. But help me overcome my unbelief. That is the cry that all saints, all people, all believers need to keep in their back pocket. Lord, I believe in you. But help me overcome my unbelief, please. And he does. And he heals the boy. 
And then Jesus has this long conversation about why the disciples couldn't um, draw out the demon because of unbelief. And it's interesting, just a side note, a sermonette, the disciples started to believe in their own ability to cast out demons. And once they stopped checking in with God, thinking it was them, they no longer could do it. So then Jesus has this whole conversation. No, you, you, you can't do this because you're getting really good at it. You can't, become a, you can't continue on being a Christian because you've been a Christian all of your life. You're a Christian then and now in your walk because of me. See, do you see how it works? Always just find its way to creep in. We start getting a little proud. Look how good I am. I can write a sermon without praying about it. I don't do that. I'm scared to death of that. But, you know, there's other things that I do that I think I don't need the Lord. But you, you see how that works? I got this. I've had this conversation with people many times. I don't have to pray about it. Oh, really? But you see that? It's just this, I do believe, but help my unbelief. See, this father came to him and said, help my unbelief. And God did. God is faithful to do that. So one of the greatest things that I have understood about God and I am still learning and still experiencing is God's promise to me in my life and the life of the other people in the world are not based on me and my performance or your performance. It is based on him and him alone. And he's the one who does all the heavy lifting. The other day, my youngest, since I pick on her because she's not in here, we were carrying something together. Homegirl was not carrying her weight, let me tell you. But she was so proud, walking, and, and we were carrying some boards. And, and then for a while, she thought she was strong carrying it with one finger. Hey, Dad, look at this. I'm carrying the whole thing. Good for you. Great job. And that's just an example of, I think, of just that spiritual pride. Look at how well I'm doing. But yet, the Father is carrying the load. I do want to point two things out in this promise, too. I want us to notice two things. What God bless, promised Abraham that he would bless him with are two things Abraham did not have to begin with. He did not have any sons, but he promised him descendants. He had no land of his own, and he became a great nation. Now, going back to earlier from Genesis 14, remember whenever the king of Sodom said, um, I, you could take uh, everything except give me back the people, all the good you, you can recover. And he says, I solemnly swear, Abram says, I solemnly swear that the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or a single thong to, from which from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. It's exactly the same thing that God is doing to Abram here. I'm not promising you grandchildren and great-grandchildren because you already have a son. I'm not promising you to be a great nation and have all this land because you have a little bit of land. God is saying, I want to make sure that this covenant we're entering in, you realize and recognize you've brought nothing to the table. Donuts, zero, because I'm assuming just human nature, perhaps just my nature, if I, ha if, if I was Abraham and I had a son and I would say, okay, God's going to take the son that my wife and I have and he's going to give me more sons or he's going to give me more children or great-grandchildren. See this land that I have? Look how proud I am. I bought it with my own hard money. He has nothing. 
It's the same thing, and I can't stress this enough. God starts at zero with him to show him, I, God, am doing it all. And once we come to that point where we recognize truly that everything we have, we started with zero, belongs to the Lord. So this is what the covenant in which they are entering in with. You're starting with zero. Now, just quickly, now we're entering into the covenant. They enter into this covenant, covenant, and it is ba- covenant is based on trust and a promise, specifically with God. And I know I mention this all the time, but I'm a big fan of marriages. When you get married, you're making a covenant with your spouse and with God, which is based on trust and promise, not on deceit. A contract is made, is created based on deceit. You do this, I'll do this. If you don't do this, contract void. Co- the covenant is, regardless of what you do, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain. But pretty please hold up your end of the bargain. But I'm going to hold it up. And truly, when we, with the covenant with God, God covers it all. And just quickly, uh, it, the covenants are not just in the Bible. Um, how would Abram know about covenants? And, and the Rosh Hashem early writings that were found in 1929 showed covenants going all the way back to Mesopotamia, like... 23 BC, the Mari tablets were discovered in 1935. Historical records of patterns and legal documents, the Nusa tablets, the Ebla discovery, you can look this up if you want to know. It just shows how covenants were made because one of the questions that I had is when God tells him to go get the animals and he cuts them in half, how did he know how to do that? It's because God is using the customs and traditions that appeared to have taken place well before the Tower of Babel fell to show I am the author of this covenant. So with all that to say, we see this blood covenant taking place, which is foreshadowing of what Christ will do. So just quickly, it says, verse 9, because this is after, O sovereign Lord, excuse me, verse 8, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it, both my descendants and the land. In verse 9 it says, and then the Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, just stop real quick. It's not a grocery list. It's it's much more. All of the sacrifices that will take place throughout the Old Testament that, that is performed is with a cow, with the female goat, with a ram, with a turtle dove, and with a pigeon. Depending on the severity of the sin or depending on what the ceremony is requires specific sacrifices. But it also, including a young pigeon, this, if you were poorer than poor, everyone could at least bring a pigeon to the Lord. You can catch one for free. So this is just showing all the way this is, this is a covenant I'm making with the rich of the rich and the poor of the poor. Just quickly in Luke 2, you know, when Jesus is being presented to the temple, what does his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, bring? Two turtle doves because they were poor of the poor. So he's just showing this. It, it, God is so neat. He, just, he is so consistent, and he brings about exactly what he's going to do, and he fulfills it, and we see it over and over and over again. That's why ultimately Christ is called the sacrificial lamb the perfect lamb. So anyway, so he brings all these things in verse 10. Abram presents them all, all these to him and killed them. 
Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the half side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcass, but Abram chased them away. I think that's just so funny that it's so specific. As Abram's waiting for God to show up, some birds, get out of here. Like, that really is one of the reasons why the Bible is so believable. Like, who includes that stuff? God does. He shoes them away because he knows he's entering to something, but he doesn't quite grasp it. So if you understand what is happening here in Genesis 15 here, this covenant, you see at the heart what the Bible is really pointing about, that God said to Abraham, I will bless you. And Abraham says, how do I know? How can I be sure? So God says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to take these animals. I want you to cut them and put them into pieces and arrange them two rows as an aisle so you can walk through them. So that's what a covenant was. I've talked about it before, but just quickly, you put on a robe. Each person was supposed to put on a robe and all the blood was there, all the entrails. It was a pretty gross scene and you walked in the middle of it and the blood got onto your robe and then you would exchange robes and say, if I do not keep my end of the bargain, you can do what we did to the animals. Also, when, when a husband and wife are getting married, the wife comes down the aisle and they leave together. It's, they're entering the covenant. Now, obviously, there's not gross animals dead on the side, but it's that same process. You entered in the covenant and you're walking through your witnesses who are supposed to keep you accountable. So when someone says, how is your marriage doing? Be honest with them. They should care and you should care, but that's for another day. So, so they, they come down, and, and this understanding is, is, if I don't do what it is that I say I'm going to do, may this happen to me. Now, this is utterly confusing, but Abraham was okay, I'll do it. Because in those days, when the other part of it is when a great Lord wanted to make a covenant with people, or lesser people, a servant, this is how it was done. The servant would walk through, never the king. Because the servant was now pledging allegiance to the new king. The king would never do it. The Lord would never do it. So he, the animals were slain and arranged, and the servants walked between it. He was acting out the curse of the covenant. It's what it's called. He was saying, I swear loyalty to you, O Lord, and, I do not, and, and if I do not keep my promise, may you cut me into pieces, Lord. So Abraham figured he was arranging this covenant ceremony. And so when he's cutting the pieces up and he's expecting that he would be called to walk through because, again, the Lord's never walked through this covenant. So he waited and he waited and he waited and he chased off the vultures and he waited for the Lord to show up so he can walk through this covenant he was entering. And it goes on that it was darkness and judgment So in verse 12, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in the foreign land where they will be oppressed for slaves for 400 years. There's going to be oppression. This is whenever they're in captivity in Egypt. But I will punish that nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace And be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to the land. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. Amorites, their destruction happens with Saul. So after the sun went down in verse 17, Abram saw the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passing. 
the halves of the carcass. So whenever we see this, this, this um, fire pot, this fire and the smoke passing through, that is the representation of both the justice and love of the Lord at the same time coming through. He's going down. And the darkness is the judgment in the midst of darkness. God appeared as smoke, a fiery pillar, just like at Mount Sinai later on, and he passed through the pieces as he promised to bless Abraham. So God, in his glory of both justice and love, walks through. Now, Abraham would be absolutely terrified and absolutely shocked. And every commentator, or most every commentator that I read, suggests that Abraham is surprised and astonished because what this means is that God is not just saying, I will bless you, and he's promising him, I will bless you, and I promise I will die if I don't bless you. And remembering the significance of that blood covenant, walking through is essentially signing your name on the dotted line. And, and this is how I wrote it down. God not only signed in his space, but he signed in Abraham's space too. He's saying, here is the, the loan for your house. I'm not only putting down the down payment, I'm making your payments for you. Again, God is saying, this has nothing to do with you. I am carrying it. I was so surprised this week to really recognize Abraham never walked through this covenant. God walked through the covenant for both him and all of mankind. And so Abraham is overwhelmed by this. And this was the first time that God went through the pieces. The God of the universe walks through and says, I am so trustworthy that I'm willing to put my life on the line. And again, the second surprise that Abraham never went through. And all through history, in all of the records that we see, in all the archaeological discoveries that I mentioned briefly, the ceremony ends. And therefore, God made a covenant with Abraham. But this was unheard of. It was amazing for the God or a Lord to go through the pieces. One theologian wrote, not only will I be torn into pieces if I don't keep my promise, I will be torn into pieces if you don't keep your promise. That's whole level stuff. So again, God signs in both spots, his spot and the other spot. He says, I'm entering into contact, a covenant with you. Again, I'm making the entire payment. God is saying this, I'm close with this, to all of the world. I will bless you no matter what, even if it means that my immortality must become mortal, even if my glory must be drowned into darkness, even if I have literally been torn to pieces. And he was. Because centuries later, as Stott says, darkness came down on Mount Calvary Thick darkness, and in the midst of the darkness, there was God in the person of Jesus Christ, and he was literally being torn to pieces, nails, spears, and thorns. He was taking a covenant curse. And as Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham all these centuries ago might come to us through Christ Jesus. Are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? Stop and go on. The answer is yes. Because of the cross, Jesus Christ absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love you absolutely unconditionally. 
with this perfect life, he would go on and say, with this perfect life, Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the terms of the covenant and he earned the blessing. But with the sacrificial death, he completely fulfilled the curse of the covenant that leaves the blessing for you and me. Anyone who lifts empty hands of faith and asks for it, Jesus Christ fulfilled the condition of the covenant so that way we could receive it unconditionally. Two quick reflections. To the mature Christian in here, what can happen in our walk with the Lord? Slipping back into the workspace, performance-based relationship with God. This can happen in a few common ways. You start to compare your walk with the Lord to other people, and you think you're doing better than someone else. I'm not talking about having heartbreak over sin. I'm not talking about helping someone else. I'm not talking about accountability. But when you look at someone and say, at least in your heart, probably not out loud, I'm doing way more for the kingdom than they are. You're falling back. You're starting to think that you are worth more than somebody else. God walked through that covenant for all of us. Or if you're sitting here and think, I just need to work harder and do better. Working harder should mean to you drawing nearer to Christ. Come closer to him. Responding in the work that you do in your life, giving it up to him. And for all of us, regardless of where we're at, be in a position of humility where you tell Jesus exactly like that father who had that son with the demon spirit and say, Christ, Jesus, my Lord, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. He paid it both. He paid your covenant and his covenant. We are safe in him. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this time that we've had to come and worship you, Lord. You're such a good God. It's one thing for us to see and recognize when we enter into contracts with other people or even covenants, Lord, that deep down inside we know that it's not perfect and we're not perfect. And yet you came down to Abraham and then through your son and paid not only not only sign on the, on the dotted line for yourself, but for us, knowing full well that we would not be able to keep up the, our end of the bargain, Lord, and that you carried the curse that we put on you. You did not deserve, but we deserved. So that we're thankful. We're thankful for the love that you have for us and that it's ongoing. And Lord, I pray for everybody in here, starting with me, that I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Let us be full of humility to come with you when we have questions and not hide from you as if we ever could. Thank you for being our good dad, our loving father that does all the heavy lifting. So we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.